Hey, um, my name is Trista Izel, and I am so stoked to be with you today. Um, I put a lot of thought into what I would talk about today, and I really, considering the theme of this series, and I want to close it out strong, I am going to be talking about a brief history of women's spirituality. So a little background on me, um, I am a third year MDiv student, so I'm soon to ha have my Masters of Divinity. Um, I was a, one of the pastors at a church plant in North Hollywood called New Abbey, North Hollywood for about a year. And now I'm really focusing on my studies in the direction my career is going to go, considering we are in a pandemic. So that's just a little bit about me. I am a bit of a troublemaker. Um, I am known to say things that other people might not like to hear. Um, but hopefully you guys will like what I have to say today though. So I'm gonna give a trigger warning. This scripture that I am about to read has been misused many times. It's been misused especially over women in our gender roles. And I'm gonna be challenging it today, but trigger warning, because I am gonna read it. First Timothy 2, 9 through 15. I'll understand if you need to skip a few seconds ahead. Women should not adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire, but with, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, deep breaths. If you're seeing red, I understand. So am I every single time I read that passage. Whew, okay, continuing. Who else grew up being told you weren't allowed to be an outspoken spiritual woman because of that verse? That women should obey men, be quiet, and raise children? What if history tells us a bigger story of God? A God that uses women's spirituality to communicate with the world since the beginning of the world. Most of us are familiar with some classical biblical women. Deborah the prophetess, 
who leads Israel to victory. Jezebel, who is the mastermind behind her husband, the king's rule of Israel. And how can we forget Jael, who seduced Israel's enemy and put a tent peg through his head. Classic, right? Classic biblical woman right there. Um, I kind of want to go and look a little bit into some indigenous cultures and how some women had spiritual rules. For example, in Australia, the indigenous Indigenous Aboriginal women were and are to this day known as custodians of the earth. They were given the sacred duty of taking care of the environment that the gods gave them and to this day are renowned spiritual and environmentalist teachers on how to best protect the sacred land. And in pre-colonial African tribes, they had priestesses who were known as spiritual mediums who had the ability to channel spirits who would help the tribes protect and nurture their land and food sources. Women have always had spiritual roles within the world and its many cultures. Today, I want to focus on three types of spiritual women. The mystics, the witches, and the abolitionists. So what do you think of when you hear the word mystic? For some, this word conjures up visions of the weird, the uncanny, and the otherworldly. But church history is rich full of spiritual women and men who identified as mystics because they explored God through meditation. And through this meditation, they had visions, ecstasies, and embodied spiritual experiences that led to what they call as inner transformation. Now, mysticism is not exclusive to Christianity and has been observed in pagan, Jewish, Islam, Buddhist, and Hindu religions. Mystics believe they have had a direct and transformative experience with the divine. The Christian mystics were and are controversial, as many of the experience described challenged the status quo of the church's traditional practices. Many of the women who joined nunneries and practiced mysticism were considered hysterical and sexually perverted, as they claimed to speak with authority from God and often had quote-unquote sexual episodes. My all-time favorite mystic is Hildegard of Bingen. She was absolutely one of the most brilliant and subversive people to ever walk this planet. She was known as a composer, a poet, a performer, a dramatist, a visionary, a prophet, a theologian, an exegete, the first sexologist, a cosmologist, spiritual leader, preacher, exorcist, philosopher, founder, correspondent, political advisor, monastic troubleshooter, naturalist, medical writer, linguist, noblewoman, nun, mag magistra, teacher, healer, 
an autobiographer. Many people remember her for her incredibly complex and rich composition of over 77 musical pieces, but that was only one aspect of her glorious life. From early on in her life, she saw visions from God that revealed to her the brilliant things she became known for. And as a result, she fostered a deep and admirable, admirable spiritual life. She wrote three major theological works, which, hello, unheard of women at that time. She invented a language, like, what? Wrote a book on medical cures and several other notable writings. And she was known to have a healing touch with medicine, making her well-known across Europe as many would flock to her for healing. Now, my favorite part is Hildegard was the first person, not just the first woman, first person in recorded history to write down what the vaginal orgasm was like. And she later sketched it out in the by merging a vision of the universe that God gave her, pause, Google the cosmic egg online right now, and you will see this universe, aka vagina, is thinly guised image of the vagina in orgasm. And as far as we know, it was the first correct vaginal image of its kind. It is proof of the patriarchal oppression deeply ingrained in the world that Hildegard is not one of the most beloved and famed women in history. Like, what? She's more impressive than most of the men that we've read about in our textbooks. Assuredly, many men purposely left her out when teaching church history. She was not quiet. She taught men and women alike things about God and the world, and she brought countless works of beautiful art and music and poetry into the world. Hildegard is a woman of God that should inspire us to use our minds, our hearts, and our souls to express the beauty that God reveals to us and that God does not limit God's power to one sex or the other, but uses all who are willing to make their lives meaningful. Now I'm going to be talking about the witch. Throughout history, Thousands upon thousands of women were tortured, labeled evil, or murdered for supposedly worshiping the devil. This was the OG satanic panic, like way before the 80s. And it was deeply entrenched in the idea that women who came from Eve, women came from Eve, who was the first sinner who caused Adam to quote-unquote stumble, meaning that all women came from her, so they are innately evil. Wise women, spiritual women, and or non-Christian women who had spiritual practices and healing knowledge 
were painted out by Christian men to have sex with the devil, signing over their souls. Spiritual women, some Christian and some not, were vilified as evil devil worshippers any time they did something that men did not understand or like. It was unfathomable that women could think for themselves, be knowledgeable, and possibly even hear from the divine. Similarly to mystics, the witches were simply outspoken and subversive spiritual women who were considered hysterical. In the religions that predated Christianity, societies worshipped goddesses and relied heavily upon the healers and cunning folk. People who could see, had visions, could read your future, um, and knew how to use elements of the earth to help heal people of their diseases and ailments. Um, so Christianity comes in, and they don't like that. They come and they colonize other religions and to the point of making these spiritual wise women, wise men practices quote-unquote evil and quote-unquote worshipping Satan. But them looking down on it did not prevent these gifted women from existing. As author Carol F. Carson says, the history of witchcraft is primarily the history of women. Quote, unquote. In the 15th century, diseases and war prevailed under the Catholic Church and many people of that time were uneducated and easily superstitious, blaming everything that went wrong on evil. Soon, everything a woman did was quote-unquote wrong was because of witchcraft. Witch and Professor Kirsten J. Soli comes in hot with this. Christian women were indoctrinated with the narratives about the lurking evils of womanhood from their youth. So it stands to reason they could succumb to the belief that they too were the devil's handmaidens. And that is referring to many of the women who were tortured and confessed they were worshipping the devil when in fact they never had been. Today, we see that many women are reclaiming the title witch as a political, feminist, and spiritual way to fight the patriarchal, colonial brainwashing from Christianity. These women are connecting with ancient religious practices as a way of becoming embodied and taking power over their lives. I believe that the vilified witch of the past and the political witch of today are inviting us to examine the narratives handed down to us through the pain and oppression of the women who came before us. The most magical thing that we can do today is express our freedom of spirituality and use our gifts to make the world a better place 
the women coming after us. And now I'm going to be talking about two amazing black women from the 19th century, Jarena Lee and Sojourner Truth. Jarena Lee and Sojourner Truth lived in 19th century North America, a country divided on the ethics and legalities of owning slaves, and the government and people would remain divided for the majority of the 19th century. The African-American women who were freed before the 13th Amendment, likely in truth, faced the double discrimination of being both African-American and a woman. The Equal Rights Amendment allowing women to vote wouldn't pass until 1923. Historicist Darlene Hine explains, the cult of domesticity placed black women in a double bind that centered on their work and virtue. Not only were they forced to, to work the supplement scarce family resources, but also their jobs outside of the home reinforced their perception of their lack of virtue. The radicalization of Lee and Truth's religious and social agency and their active refusal to submit to expected roles based upon race, class, and gender become even more important and blatantly subversive when considering the intense resistance they undoubtedly faced. The religious context that the African-American operated within in the 19th century North America is complete only with an understanding of the religious context of their indigenous ancestors who were ripped away from Africa. While there was colonization in Africa before the rise of the North American slave trade, and some Christianity and Islam had influenced area of Africa, and this influence is found in aspects of how the African American person in the 18th, 19th centuries interpreted Christianity. The idea of a one true God, like the Christian religion puts forth was not completely foreign idea to the indigenous African religion. Diving deeply into the indigenous African religion practices helps us to understand that Africans were not as savage and godless as many colonizers would often classify them. They had insight and an evolved point of view of interacting with the divine within the tribal and natural context that they were given. As African-American slaves were for forced to be both separate from white culture, but also forsake the culture of the homeland, they found subtle ways to reclaim their religion with their own approaches to a scholar quotes, the names and words of African gods were replaced by biblical figures and Christian imagery. African style and European Haimati met and became in the new spiritual thing. African-American song to express joys and sorrows of the religions which the slaves made their own. It is noted that many Afri quote unquote, it is noted that many African-American studies show how slaves would use the constrained religion 
forced upon them as ways to subvert the oppressive norms and gain some control over their bodies. Jarena Lee is mostly known for being the first African-American woman and author to publish an autobiography. Her work was revolutionary in that it addressed the issues she faced of being a disembodied African-American servant and from being separated from her family. For instance, she discusses how the disembodiment of her worth as a human being led to her suicide attempts and her mystical visions that changed her trajectory becoming an embodied abolitionist and preacher who found her life to be worth living. She would eventually challenge ideas around women's ability to lead churches. Lee's embodied work would go on and spark an entire genre and revolutionary movement for African-American women, writers, and preachers. So Lee was not born a slave, but due to the lack of acceptance of African-American people as worthy of equal rights and access to employment, her family was incredibly poor and she began became a servant maid at age seven, where her experiences of being mistreated and separated from loved ones left her anxious and suicidal. The violence that was inflicted upon her body and spirit caused extreme disembodiment and erasure of her identity as a valuable human being and African woman. Lee describes her first mystical encounter with God as saving her, saving her from her first recorded suicide attempt. And this is from Lee's own words. At the time, I had a book in my hand. It was on a Sabbath morning about 10 o'clock. To this place I resorted, resorted, where on the coming to water I sat down on the bank, and, and on my looking into it, it was suggested that drowning would be an easy death. It seemed as if someone was speaking to me, saying, put your head under, it will not distress you. But by some means of which I can give no account, my thoughts were taken entirely from this purpose. When I went from that place to the house again, it was the unseen arm of God which saved me from self-murder. Unquote. A similar situation would happen again, but this time it left a lasting impression on Lee. It is not a small thing that Lee's mystical encounters serve as conduits for her finding a reason to live. The disembodied nature of slavery and servanthood had an impact upon the African-American community and consistently attempted to rob them of their humanity and their divinity. Lee realizing that God cared enough to intervene and speak to her, reinforced the indigenous African idea that her body was sacred ground for the one true God. As mentioned earlier, Lee describes a physical sensation of freedom entering her body through a jolt of lightning, 
This is a manifestation of her spiritual agency and embracing embodied liberation. The dark shackles of oppression had been ripped away from Lee, and she had become a liberated woman from the inside out. Lee refers to moments where she is filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. A remarkable subversive statement coming from someone who occupied the space of the most disempowered identity in North America, the African American woman. The spirituality that Lee participates in is very important to her journey of spiritual and physical agency. While this encounter does these these encounters that she had does follow the language of conversion testimony of the 19th century, there is a subtext of which activist James Cohen would one day coin to be black liberation theology. A sword in her truth is renowned for her legendary fierceness and prominent voice in both the abolitionist movement and the African-American church. Unlike Lee, Truth was bo born into slavery and faced much more mistreatment and abuse. It is believed that one of the women that Truth was enslaved to sexually abused her. Her access to education and religion was limited to early instruction from her mother. The severity of her disembodiment placed upon truth through slave labor and exploitation is proportional to the work of reclaiming the embodiment and ownership of the African-American identity that truth would dedicate her second, the second half of her life to. In Truth's narrative, her life, the disembodiment of an African-American slave identity, was brutally painted in comparing them with being treated like a cattle in Truth's living conditions and in the slave auctions. Similarly to Lee, Truth struggled to see herself as worthy of her own identity. When reflecting upon her years of enslavement, Truth reveals she was terrified of her masters and believed her life's purpose was to please them at all times. As was common to many slaves, Truth's idea of God was distorted to conflating the divine with her slave master. The distortion of God to the African-American slave connects to the disembodiment of their bodies and spirituality that occurred when their ancestors were taken away from their homeland and their indigenous African religion that had treated their body as the place where God met them. While Truth's mother had passed on a mostly disembodied approach to God, she had also encouraged Truth to call out to God when she was in trouble. My children, there is a God, a God who sees you. He lives in the sky, she replied. And when you are beaten or cruelly treated or fall into any trouble, you may ask of him and he will always help you. This was a quote from Truth's autobiography. Truth's spiritual encounters began when she recalls her mom's teaching to pray when she was being beaten horribly by her master. 
initially, prayer does not seem like an overwhelmingly subversive act. But for truth, this crying out to God is the first step she takes in claiming spiritual and physical agency and embodiment. As she finally is recognizing that she held in herself enough humanity for abuse to be wrong. Truth begins to create her own place for worship. She, she calls it a sacred space that creates conditions in which nature could mediate the spiritual forces and the divine power inhabiting our sacred social world. The action of creating her own place to meet God is an act of returning to her indigenous African roots, of believing that God desires to meet people, and as a response to the objective conditions of violence and abuse. Her narrative goes on to describe a mystical vision truth receives during prayer. Who are you, she exclaimed, as the vision brightened into a form distinct beaming with the beauty of holiness and radiant with love she then said audibly addressing the mysterious visitant i know you and i don't know you meaning you seem perfectly familiar i feel that you not only love me but that you have always loved me and i know you not i cannot call you by name who are you was the cry of her heart and the whole soul was in deep prayer but that this heavenly parsonage might be revealed to her and remain with her. At length, after bending both soul and body with intensity of this desire, till breath and strength seemed failing, and she could maintain her position no longer, an answer came to her saying distinctly, It is Jesus. Just like Lee, right before the vision, she feels a bolt of lightning, lightning run through her body, symbolizing the life-giving and liberating nature of these spiritual experiences. Truth dedicates the second half of her life after being freed to shedding the shackles of disembodied identity in North American slavery had forced upon African Americans by both spiritually and physically oppressing their agency. The spiritual and physical embodiment revealed itself potently in the changing of her name from Isabel Van Wagner to Sojourner Truth on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday was especially significant for African-American Christians like Truth as it represents the day in the early church in history where the Holy Ghost came and dwelled with humankind. The African religion believed the spirit of the gods who would possess the body, making the human body a divine sacred ground with which God manifested truth. The name change signifies that truth considered herself to have been transformed from her former spirituality and physically disembodied self to a spiritually and physically embodied and liberated woman. It is with this reclaiming of her African identity and exercising spiritual agency that truth is able to boldly speak up for African-American rights and challenge the gender roles forced upon women in the African-American church. Truth spoke particularly 
about the high value of African-American labor, shedding light on the hypocrisy of the white liberal abolitionists who refused to pay freed African-Americans a decent wage. Truth did not believe that disembodiment of African-Americans was limited to slave labor, but argued by reducing their physical work to a cheap commodity, they were perpetuating a cycle of white oppression on African-American bodies. Because of Truth's embodied spirituality and realization of her own worth and the worth of her African-American brothers and sisters, she refused to be silent as they left one form of enslavement for another. Scholar Richard Douglas Chin expounds on the issues Truth chose to face. After emancipation was actually achieved, white abolitionists did expect Truth to do all the stirring. They largely lost interest in the cause of black people, ignoring the fact that millions of blacks were now homeless and destitute, unquote. So similarly to Lee, Truth was an incredibly passionate about being a preacher. She was a true embodiment of the new identity of a liberated woman with spiritual agency and the authority that her spiritual encounters gave her access to. While she is known in many ways for her political activism, it is her religious convictions that followed her spiritual experiences that compelled the majority of her work. In advocating for the embodied authority of African-American preachers, a natural activism on the behalf of African-American women's rights was born out of truth embodied spirituality and physicality. She says, I feel that I have the answer, I have to answer for the deeds done in my body just as much as a man. I have a right to have just as much as a man. There is a great stir about colored men getting their rights, but not a word about the colored woman. If colored men get their rights and not colored women theirs, you see, the colored men will be masters over women and it will be just as bad as it was before. So we can see that Truth's journey from the disembodied slave whose identity had been Subject to the erasure of the African existence to white colonization, she became a spiritually and physically embodied and liberated woman. And she no longer could be silent in the face of any form of disembodiment in the African-American community. It was no accident that I spent a good portion of today's sermons discussing two incredibly strong spiritual black women as I believe we should be taking the lead of black women in politics and, ma and in matters of spirituality, as they have for far too long been silenced and dismissed. Their wisdom can and should inspire our own spiritual journeys. I hope that today was informative, but mostly I hope it was inspirational. We are so conditioned to those, those tiny little voices in the back of the head that whisper, you're just a woman, or you're just a trans person, or you're just non-binary. You're not the same as a man. 
And even though we have deconstructed those ideas and that we are strong feminists, we still struggle every day, especially within the church and within religion. I can't even think of how many awful messages I have received, degrading, terrible messages from men, because I have chosen to be outspoken on matters of leadership. This is our reality. But as history has shown us, there is never a moment where women have not still been amazing spiritual leaders. We have always existed. We will always exist. And it's never too late to claim your identity as a spiritually liberated and embodied human being. Thank you so much for listening today.